What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's a warm night in London in August 2004. 22-year-old French exchange student Amélie Delagrange is on her way home after a night out with friends. She catches a bus around 9.30, but accidentally misses her stop. So Amélie gets off at the last stop and decides to walk home. A white van begins to follow Amélie. The driver is drawn to the young blonde and decides to approach her. At 10.30, Amelie is discovered unconscious by a passerby in Twickenham Green, a suburban park. A pool of blood surrounds her head, and both her phone and handbag are missing. Amelie is immediately taken to a hospital, but she dies shortly after midnight. Amelie's head injuries reveal that she had been attacked with a hammer, and she isn't the first one. Marsha McDonald was another victim who died of a hammer strike a year prior. Marsha's case was still unsolved. The link between Amelie's and Marsha's deaths eventually connected the dots for the police, ultimately leading to the capture of the vicious attacker, Levi Belfield. I hate it when people refer to him as an animal because animals don't behave like that. They kill to survive, not for fun and pleasure. He was born evil. He is pure, pure evil. This is What Makes a Killer, a 12-part series that chronicles the lives and crimes of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Levi Belfield. Levi Belfield was born in Isleworth, West London, in 1968. He was one of five children. At age 10, Belfield lost his father to leukemia. As a result, he formed a very close bond with his mother, a powerful matriarch whom he visited regularly as an adult. Jeffrey Wansell is the author of The Bus Stop Killer. Belfield was um, very much a mother's boy, much beloved of his mother. It was a close-knit family brought up in West London, in, the, in, in what was effectively once a huge community of uh, travellers, and was groomed to thinking from the very early days that he was very special, that there was something particular about him. His mother encouraged him in that view. As a child, Belfield was a hellion, says criminologist Dr Elizabeth Yardley. 
I think during his childhood he was a bit of a tearaway. Uh, he was a, a young lad who, who wanted to do what he wanted to do and, and, and not much stood in his way. So he was often kind of larking around and, and getting into a bit of trouble at school, but, but nothing completely out of the ordinary. By the time Belfield was 13, he'd had his first brush with the law and was arrested for burglary. It would not be the last time that he was in trouble with the police. He would collect convictions for possessing an offensive weapon in public, credit card fraud, and multiple driving offenses. I believe Belfield occupied what you might describe as the halo of Levi Belfield. I am greater than anything. He was above the law, above suspicion, operated entirely under his own steam, in his own way, at his own time. Despite this, Belfield was in a steady stream of romantic relationships. In 1989, 21-year-old Belfield was living with a girlfriend, and they had four children together. He could literally charm the birds off the trees. This is a 19-and-a-half, 20-stone man with a huge neck, almost occupying his entire shoulders. He wasn't an attractive man, but my goodness me, he had the gift of the gap. And he didn't half use it to his advantage, particularly when it came to girls. After that relationship ended, Belfield became involved with another woman, Joe Collings. They moved in together and had two children. Joe later became his common-law wife. I first met him when I was about 17, 18, because we all used to go to a place in Twickenham called Sellers. But I kind of knew him a little bit before then because where I used to keep my horses, he used to drink at the pub just around the corner and his mum lived just down the road. Everyone knew him. He was always, you know, everyone wanted to be around him. He was like the sort of the fun person to be with, you know, always loud. At the time, Belfield worked as a nightclub doorman and began having affairs. That way he had access to any number of young women, all of whom they were out for a good time, and, and Belfield was out to help them have one. He had the talk, you know, the cuteness, and like I said, I mean, back in the day, he was good looking. You know, he always had the nice car, always had nice clothes, and, you know, he could, he could get the women. But his charming persona soon disappeared once he'd gotten what he wanted. In adulthood, Levi Belfield became a, a man that, that women should be quite fearful of. Um, he's somebody who was really entitled. Um, he, he had a real sense that women were there to serve his needs, and, and when they didn't comply with his expectations, he would turn violent and very nasty. Belfield's misogyny intensified into humiliating acts of abuse and torture at home. The abuse started five, six months after we got together. Might not even have been that long. Just with the odd slap and dig and then he'd be really sorry and it's because he said he'd never felt this way about anyone. I'd found out I was pregnant as well. So it was, it was more... He, he was trying to make out that, you know, he really cared and everything else. But, I mean, he was still seeing the one he was with before me at the time. Um, some of the abuse, he'd punch you, bite you, kick you, burn you with cigarettes, 
make you sleep naked on the floor, spit at you. You couldn't go to the toilet unless he was sat on the bath beside you. Um, all sorts of things. Despite Belfield's violent behaviour towards the women in his life, they rarely reported him to the police for fear of what he might do to them. Joe eventually found the courage to speak to police, but it was little comfort. I was the only one that had an injunction put on him, and within half an hour of him being served, it was torn up in an envelope through my front door, and he'd written on the envelope, now I'm going to kill you. By 2002, Belfield had fathered 11 children with five different women. He had started a new job, putting boots on cars, and was living in the leafy English town of Walton-on-Thames. On March 21st, 13-year-old schoolgirl Amanda Dowler, known affectionately as Millie, went missing from her home. Journalist Martin Brunt, who followed the case, remembers that day vividly. She was on her way home. She got off the train, was going to walk um, the half mile or so back to her home. She was in her school uniform, very identifiable. This was daylight, busy time of the afternoon, lots of people around, but nobody saw anything. Millie had phoned her father to say she was heading home, but never arrived. She seemed to have disappeared into thin air. There was CCTV footage of her getting off uh, the train at Walton Station. Some very blurred images of cars and uh, the odd person in the street where she was headed home, but nothing more than that. And it became clear very early on that police were really struggling to find what had happened to her. The last sighting of Millie Dowler was on Station Avenue in Walton, just 50 yards from the home of Levi Belfield. The search has taken in stretches of water, including the River Mole, but police have been concentrating on ground near the busy station and interviewing commuters. We have nothing that's, uh, that um, gives us any positive indication that she's gone off of her own volition. Um, equally, we have no positive information that she has been taken off the street and abducted. Um, at this time, all of our lines of inquiry are open. Six months after her disappearance, the body of Millie Dowler was found by a group of foragers among the trees of Yately Heath Wood in Hampshire over 20 miles from where she was last seen. She was identified through dental records. It was clear to forensic ecologist, Professor Patricia Wiltshire, that Millie's body had been in the woods ever since she disappeared. I was able to tell the police how long each bone had been there and whether, how long ago it had been moved because the bones were moved around by animals, you see. There was no doubt in my mind, really, that she had been there since the early spring. But how Millie was killed remained a mystery. The police had no suspects and no forensic evidence. But just five months after the discovery of Millie Dowler's body, another young woman was murdered. 
At around midnight on February 3, 2003, in Kingston, London, 19-year-old Marsha McDonald caught the bus home after a night out at the cinema with friends. Walking home, Marsha was attacked from behind, less than 50 yards from her parents' front door. Colin Sutton was one of the lead detectives within the Metropolitan Police at the time. Marsha was found on the street where she lived, 10 or 15 doors down from her parents' house. Uh, local resident heard a noise, uh, heard a whimpering, if you like, um, and called police, and she was found there with this terrible head wound, and, and she was taken to hospital and uh, died two or three days afterwards. Marsha was killed with a single blow to the back of the head with a heavy implement. Forensic scientists found curved lacerations and skull fractures that suggested that the weapon used was most likely a hammer. Nightfall and detectives in Hampton still work on, but though they've searched tirelessly all day, they remain baffled as to who carried out this apparently random attack. As everybody knows, most murders are committed by someone you know, whether it's a husband, wife, lover, jilted lover. It's comparatively rare for random attackers to kill. In this case, I'm sure police looked at boyfriends, family members, but very quickly ruled out uh, any kind of suspect like that. So it soon became obvious that this was a stranger murder and those are very rare. So very soon, very quickly after uh, Marsha's murder, people in the area became very concerned that there was a killer on the loose. But then investigators noticed a possible link to similar attacks that had happened in the area in the months before. There was another 16-year-old schoolgirl that um, <sighs> She was thought at first to have slipped over in the snow and banged her head. And it was only then when Marsha was murdered that police looked at this occurrence some um, two months previously and realised that that could have been an assault as well. And they went back to this girl who had been treated in hospital uh, and were able to talk to hospital staff and look at the description of her wounds and some photographs and conclude that the likelihood was that she too had been attacked but had survived we found a couple of other offences as well. Again, young ladies had been attacked in the street and hit over the back of the head. And in both these cases, they'd survived. However, none of these other victims were able to identify the attacker. They just, you know, said we, I was walking along and the next thing I knew, I woke up in hospital some hours or some days later. So we didn't have any kind of clue or sighting that led us towards the suspect for it because they just simply couldn't remember it. All the attacks seemed to be totally unprovoked, suggesting that they all may have been committed by the same perpetrator. Then, just over a year after the murder of Marsha McDowell, 18-year-old student Kate Sheedy was heading home after a night out in Twickenham, West London, to celebrate the end of her exams. Just after midnight, she caught the bus to nearby Isleworth and began to walk the few hundred yards to her front door. But something unsettling caught her attention. A white van. The engine was running, but she couldn't see who was inside. She said it looked a bit sinister because it, was, it had blacked out windows and 
She just thought it was up to no good. She didn't like it. And some sort of sixth sense or whatever said to her, no, don't walk past that. So she crossed the road so that she would be walking on the other side of the road when she walked past the, uh, the people carrier. She heard this people carrier start up, accelerate, and it literally came across the road. And simply ran into her, just ran her over. She ended up on the road between the front wheels and the back wheels of the people carrier. It then reversed, so the front, front wheels went uh, over her body again and drove off. Incredibly, Kate survived the frenzied and brutal attack. She had terrible injuries, you know, she had every rib broken, she had her liver was, was in two and various sort of injuries that she she was so brave and she overcame and she ended up going to university and, and, and you know, getting on with her life. Although the attack on Kate Sheedy seemed very different to the murder of Marsha McDonnell and all the other reported incidents, detectives still believed they could all be connected. It's similar in its outcome and it's similar in the, the area where it took place and the, the age and the, the victim and what she looks like and all this sort of thing. It's just the weapon substitute car for hammer and it's the same. They ranged in age between sort of 16 and 32. Um, they were all blonde or blondish and I guess all of them were well dressed and were quite kind of sophisticated, looked quite well off. Someone who fit that description perfectly was 22-year-old French exchange student Amélie Delagrange. And just three months after the attack on Kate Cheedy, Amélie was found dead. It was a nice night in August and she thought, oh, it's not very far, I'll walk. And, uh, you know, that was her fateful decision. Had she waited for the bus, she may well have been OK that night. At about quarter past ten, there's a, a young man walking around Twickenham Green and there's a cricket pitch there and he walked across the cricket pitch and found what he thought at first was just a, a, a bundle of rags or a bundle of clothes but turned out to be Amelie and she was lying there on the grass. Her shopping bag uh, with her shopping in was next to her and she had a single wound across the back of the head, was bleeding profusely. He thought she was still alive at that point, um, called for an ambulance. He ran to the shops on the north side of the green and alerted people to call police and ambulance. And uh, she was taken to a hospital and died an hour or so later of this single wound, which, which caused a you know, catastrophic sort of fracture to her skull and, and, and a brain injury. It appeared that Amelie had been killed by a blow to the head with a hammer, just like Marsha McDonnell. Police were now certain that the killings were more than just a coincidence. We were conscious that there had been a number of similar attacks in the area over the preceding sort of 18 months or so. One of those was the murder of Marsha McDonnell, and the other was the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. And as our investigation progressed looking at the Amelie murder, so we realised that we had to look at these previous offences as well. Like all the attacks reported, there appeared to be no motive for the murder. Absolutely no reason for it. None. Simply a, a, a random killing. The most difficult kind of killer to catch, incidentally, because there's no connection. There was no connection between Emily de Lagrange and Marshall McDonald. None. They didn't know each other. They weren't friends. There was no connection between 
those two and Kate Sheedy. A second senseless murder in the same area struck fear in the community. The media were very keen to ask us, is this a series? Are we dealing with a serial killer? Because those words have a particular sort of connotation and, and mean something. And because we couldn't link them formally by DNA or fingerprints, we couldn't really say that. So what we said was that we had a linked investigative series. And what that meant was these offences are so similar in MO and in uh, their location and the profile of the victim that it would be a nonsense to investigate them with different teams. Pressure to catch the killer was mounting, but there was no DNA evidence at the scene of any of the attacks. Colin and his team had little to work with, particularly in Amelie's case. Nobody had seen anything. There was no CCTV covering there. She had a boyfriend. She had no other kind of contacts, really, in, in you know, no family or friends or, or, or life history in England. She'd not been here very long. And, and it had all the kind of characteristics of a completely random attack, and they're often the very hardest to investigate because not only do you not have the, the links to, to help you, but also they're quite often those murders that are pre-planned. And when people pre-plan murders, they tend to think about things like CCTV and their mobile phone data and all the other tricks and, and DNA and, and, and fingerprints and things, and all the things that we can use in most murder cases can be absent in pre-planned murders. But for the detectives, it was what was missing that could be the key. Since Amelie's phone was absent at the scene, police decided to trace its location. They were able, from the phone company, to get the information that her phone had switched off from the network, had been lost by the network, if you like, at Walton-on-Thames at a particular time. Well, this time was something like eight or nine minutes after she was found dying on Twickenham Green. And Walton-on-Thames is a considerable distance away, and it pointed to the bag with her phone in it having been taken away by somebody in a vehicle. Detectives searched through 2,000 hours of CCTV and eventually identified a white van at the scene, parked close to where Amelie was murdered. Even so, with over 25,000 similar vans registered in the UK, the police weren't optimistic about finding the right one. But luck was on their side. We had this file that was, the official name for it is the single suggestion file, I think, where, where people ring up and say, I've got an idea who might have committed that crime, it is, and give, give a name. And we had 129 people in this file. And every one of them had been suggested to us from a former wife or former girlfriend, or even a current wife or current girlfriend. And uh, I termed it the women's scorned file. So we thought, oh, we'll go and have a look through that and, and see if any body in there had access to a white van and we might be able to kind of shortcut the search that way. That's when the name Joe Collings surfaced. She had come forward after the murders were reported and suggested her ex-partner Levi Belfield as a possible suspect. I was technically with him in a relationship three, four years, but he ruled my life for 11 years, every day. He would drive past my house five, six, ten times a day, constantly ring me. 
he would walk down the alleyway at the back of my house and he'd ring me and tell me what time I'd put the kettle on, what I was wearing, um, who was around my house, everything. Joe told detectives that Belfield had a white van for his wheel clamping business and that he had a violent nature with a particular hatred of blonde women. It was a pivotal moment in the case. I'd always, at the back of my mind, because of how twisted and warped he is, you always think he could go that one step further. I mean, people say I'm as guilty as he is because I didn't come forward before, but there was never enough evidence or enough people willing to say, yes, actually, he did do this, he did do that, because so many people were scared of him. We get the report we've had, which says I found a magazine where he stabbed through all the photographs of blonde girls in it. He's very weird, and it's just the sort of thing he'd want to do, and he now works as a wheel clamper and uses a little white van to do it. So, oh, you know, that's, that's exactly what we're looking for. Somebody who's got a small white van, so let's try and progress that. By connecting the dots, Colin and his team could link Belfield to another vehicle, the car that ran Kate Sheedy down. And one of the times that he was arrested was in May 2004, when he was arrested for kidnap, which was kidnapping the landlord of a pub near where he lived in West Drayton. And nothing happened about it, and the landlord in the incident, oh no, it was just a prank that went wrong, don't worry about it, didn't want to press charges, no charges were brought. But the crucial thing was that that arrest took place, and that abduction took place indeed, in a vehicle, and that vehicle was a white Toyota Previa. Kate Sheedy had been attacked in Isleworth, not by being hit across the head, but by being run over by a large vehicle. And she said that this vehicle was something like a Ford Galaxy. Of course, that's exactly what a Toyota Previa is. The white people carrier. That was actually on my drive about two weeks before he ran Kate Sheedy over with it. Only because he asked me if he could leave it there for a couple of nights, and I begrudgingly said yes. And he got somebody to go and do a check on the number plate of the Previa that Levi had been arrested in, and I remember her saying to me, Governor, I think we might have hit the jackpot, and said it was white. We now had somebody, Levi Belfield, who had the right kind of white van that was used at the time Amelie Delagrange was murdered, and the right type of vehicle at the time that Kate Sheedy was run over. Belfield was now the prime suspect. At dawn on November 22, 2004, police raided Belfield's home in West Drayton. In the attic is a naked Levi Belfield. He'd covered himself up in the hope that no one would find him. Well, they did, and indeed the sergeant got him down and he duly handcuffed him. Of course, he said to us, oh, I was only hiding because I thought it was a gang, I thought it was somebody after me. Well, it was somebody after you, Levi, but it was the murder squad. At 8.30 this morning, police raided several homes in West Drayton. The one behind me, that of 36-year-old Levi Belfield and his common-law wife. The nightclub bouncer is currently being held at a West London police station. Belfield was interrogated by detectives in relation to a long string of offenses, ranging from rape to grievous bodily harm. He refused to answer any questions, and at one point he even turned his back on investigators. 
He was remanded to custody for almost 16 months until March 2nd, 2006, when he was formally charged with the murder of Amelie Delagrange and the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. The murder of Marsha McDonnell was added to his list of charges on May 25th. Belfield's trial began at the Old Bailey Criminal Court on October 12th, 2007. He pleaded not guilty on all counts. Levi Belfield's trial for the murders of um, Amelie and Marsha was very long, very drawn out. He was an imposing figure in the dock, big, tall, but it was his manner throughout it that I think drew most attention. He looked very bored. Uh, he did give evidence. Uh, there were glimpses of the charm, in a way, when he was talking. I'm not suggesting he charmed the jury, but I think some of them might have found him captivating uh, while he was talking in those terms. But he also had a very squeaky voice that, again, was at odds with this rather physically imposing man in the dock, denied any of the charges, and uh, you got the impression that he felt that he would be acquitted at the end of it. But the circumstantial evidence weighed heavily against Belfield. They found 20 or 30 sightings of this van, separate bits of CCTV, and that's when we built up the picture of this van circling Twickenham Green, effectively, and driving around for a period of something like 45 minutes before Emily was murdered. Hunting, no other word for it. You know, it was cruising a very small area looking for people to, uh, to approach. On February 25th, 2008, Belfield was found guilty of the murders of Amelie de Lagrange and Marsha McDonnell, as well as the attempted murder of Kate Sheedy. Judge Mrs. Justice Rafferty sentenced Belfield to life in prison. He was sent to Woodhill Prison and will never be released. His modus operandi, according to the police, was that he got very angry if he approached a young woman that he was attracted to and felt rejected by them. And uh, it is suggested that this is what happened in the case of the two women he killed. Speculation surrounding Belfield's unhealthy obsession with blondes started at the age of 12. Belfield's 14-year-old girlfriend, who was blonde, was found strangled to death. The day Belfield received his sentence, he was named as the chief suspect in another case, one that had stunned the nation and remained unsolved for nine years the murder of Millie Dowler. There was a lot of circumstantial evidence, particularly the fact that he had been living uh, close by, within a couple of hundred yards of the place where she disappeared. It was established that he had use of and had used on that day his partner's red car, which matched one that was found in CCTV of the scene. But then there was the evidence of his partner who said that Levi Belfield had got up in the middle of the night, the night of Millie's disappearance, and had made an excuse to go back to that flat. And when she later went to the flat, she discovered that the bedding had disappeared off their bed. And he said that uh, the dog 
had fouled uh, the bedspread um, and he'd had to burn it. Now that was quite compelling evidence um, for the jury and they were convinced that he was the killer. On March 4, 2008, an ex-colleague of Belfield, Kelly Fry, told ITV News that Belfield had confessed to her about murdering Millie back in 2002. He pointed out a flat in Walton and said that he used to live there and that he'd lost £900 in rent that he'd already paid because he had to move out. And he said, oh yeah, I also set fire to Emma's car. And I said, well, why would you set fire to your girlfriend's car? And he said, because I took the girl. That was his exact words. And immediately I just knew that he was on about Millie. If I, for one minute, thought that it was true, then I would have come forward a long, long time ago. There was no forensic evidence. There was no smoking gun anywhere. They had to build a case with, with what people had been saying, with little facts, with phone evidence they had, with what CCTV they had, which wasn't particularly much. The whole thing came back to us knowing what Levi Belfield had done on the night that uh, Millie Dowler was abducted. Belfield had been questioned about Millie Dowler during the time he was on remand for his other crimes, but refused to comment. But one person was certain he'd murdered Millie, his ex-partner, Joe Collings. He said that he'd never been to Yateley and he had nothing, no knowledge of the area. Well, out of all the photographs, and I don't know why, everything I had I threw away. And I found an envelope, and it had two photographs in it, and it was two of me and him at Yateley, which is really bizarre, and I'm a great believer of everything happens for a reason, and I wasn't meant to throw those pictures out because they were needed. And, of course, they showed him in Yateley, so he knew where Millie was found. He knew exactly the lay of the land because we used to go there all the time. On May 10th, 2011, three years after his first trial, Belfield was once again in the dock at the Old Bailey, this time charged with the murder of Millie Dowler. He pleaded not guilty and refused to give evidence in his defense. With Levi Belfield, it's a power and control thing for him, because um, only he has knowledge of, of the murders that he's committed. Only he knows exactly who his victims were, the full extent of the women that he perpetrated these crimes against. And it gives him a sense of power. Um, he's in prison now, so what he's got control over is very limited. But one thing that he still can exercise power over is that knowledge. And as long as that's his, then he's in control. Jeffrey Wansell was in the courtroom during the trial. What's striking about Belfield? is that he wanted to put every witness through a real ordeal because he never once pleaded guilty. He wanted them all to suffer, and he particularly wanted the Dowler family to suffer. It was as though he were smirking to himself, look what I'm putting you through. He sat there absolutely silent throughout this fierce cross-examination, utterly justified, I'm not criticising at all, in fact, it was perfectly justified. Belfield made it happen. He made it happen by not pleading guilty and he made it happen by instructing his own defence silk, his own barrister, to pursue the Dowlers to the full extent he was possible of. And it's very difficult to forgive Belfield for that. And he underlines just what a malicious, malign, evil man he is. On June 23rd, 2011, 
the jury found Levi Belfield guilty once more. Judge Mr. Justice Wilkie sentenced him to life, on top of the life sentence he was already serving. The fact that he is, as far as I know, the only convicted killer who's been given two whole-life tariffs does make him unique. Uh, a judge in each case, the two judges, both felt that his crimes were so awful that he should be never given the chance of parole, that life will mean life for him. To be given two sentences like that is extraordinary. I suppose, in practical terms, it doesn't make any difference. Again, I suppose if he ever felt that he might try and challenge that, he's got to do it twice, and the chances of him ever being released are nil. In 2016, it was reported that Belfield had confessed to the murder of Millie Dowler, giving gruesome details of how he'd abused and killed her. Then, shortly after, he retracted the admission, causing the Dowler family untold grief. He loves to manipulate, and he loved to manipulate the Dowler family, and they were his victims every bit as much as Millie was. Well, basically what's going on when offenders like Levi Belfield admit to things or don't admit to things or, or retract things is that they are eliciting quite a lot of attention. Um, they are keeping people interested in them. Um, they are playing with people, because people like Levi Belfield, they are the puppet masters. They like pulling other people's strings. They like pushing their buttons and seeing what happens. Levi Belfield is now serving time at Franklin Prison. He has converted to Islam and calls himself Yusuf Rahim. Nothing would ever surprise me with Levi Belfield. I don't know what he's done. Only he knows what he's done. He would do anything if he thought there was an angle that made it the best thing for Levi Belfield to do for Levi Belfield. And he was ruthless, he was violent, he was sociopathic, I'm sure. So who knows what else he might have done. He sees himself, and still sees himself to this day, as a powerful, charismatic, famous, now notorious figure whose place is guaranteed in the record books. It feeds his arrogance. It feeds his ego, and there's nothing Belfield likes more than feeding his ego. In letters written by Belfield from his cell to the makers of this series, he claims that he has never confessed to any of his crimes and still maintains he is not guilty, saying, I'm innocent of all my convictions. I have witnessed and done things I truly regret, but I'm no killer. My lifestyle led to my wrongful convictions. I blame no one but me. The real victims are the victims and families of these crimes. I am sincerely sad for their loss, but I am not a victim. My lifestyle put me here. My choice, my fault. But some of the people who knew Belfield refuse to believe his assertions. Levi Evil, or blends into one. Um, I've always said it before, I hate it when people refer to him as an animal, because animals don't behave like that. They kill to survive, not for fun and pleasure. Belfield is a psychopath. He deserves utterly to be in jail for the rest of his life. He's a preening, vain, manipulative 
smart, deathly man. And if anyone deserves to be called evil, it's certainly Levi Belfield. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Casey Georgie, Rachel Jacobs, Blair Payton, Karen Bevan, and by Nick Maverdekis for Woodcut. Original music by Ben Kregi and Kai Angle. Recorded by Osei Avril at Listen Up Studios in Atlanta. Executive producers for Woodcut are Kate Beale and Janelle Patel, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to the survivors, friends, and families of victims willing to share their stories. If you or someone you know is a victim of sexual assault, please reach out for help. You can contact the National Sexual Assault Hotline by calling 1-800-656-HOPE or 1-800-656-4673. You can also visit their website at rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. If you have some time, please leave us a review. Thanks. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer... Shortly before midnight on July 22, 1991, two Milwaukee police officers were flagged down in their patrol car by a man with a pair of handcuffs dangling from one wrist. The police had no idea that this bizarre encounter would lead to the arrest of one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. That night, people were afraid. People were whispering under their breaths, you know, it was the devil, it's the devil. The man had escaped from a small one-bedroom apartment on North 25th Street. When the officers went to investigate, they found themselves in a living nightmare. He was in the process of constructing some hideously diabolical shrine in his bedroom out of the skulls and skeletons of some of his victims. And he was performing or creating some sort of ancient, you know, human sacrificial temple in this little Milwaukee apartment. <laughs>